right, it's another week. This is Andrew Wood. I'm so excited to be back on the air as it feels like it's been forever. And it, it kind of has been a while. We, uh, the Wood family, and not the entire Wood family, but my wife and I, uh, took off to Hawaii, and uh, man, we were gone for what was supposed to be 10 days. Our flight got canceled on the way back, so uh, they twisted our arm and said, you need to stay one more day in Hawaii, and so we did that, and then we came back home to the great state of Tennessee, uh, which I, I told somebody, I said, I'm, I'm really happy to be back home and back in Tennessee, and they're like, you don't have to lie, and I was like, look, if you, the more you get to know me, the more you'll know I'm a homebody. And uh, and although Hawaii is beautiful and amazing and the landscape is otherworldly and it really shows off God's creation, it's still not Tennessee and it's still not the wood home and it's still not uh, me sitting in my own house. Uh, but but man, we had a blast. And, and of course, prayers continue to go out to the folks uh, in Maui and, and all that they're dealing with. We were in Hawaii while the fires were going on, but we were an island over uh, when Maui was hit with uh, with the fire. And so pray for them. We, we've had our own share of fires in East Tennessee in the past, and, and we know how rough that was on the people and on the infrastructure and everything. And, and of course, uh, the tourist destination that Maui is, they need people to be coming there uh, for their livelihood. So be praying for them and, and praying that they can get over that quickly and that government entities who uh, currently aren't doing much, would step in and provide the care and help uh, that is needed. Uh, but we are glad to be back in Tennessee. I'm glad to be back uh, doing the show and, and giving you some information. Today we got a lot to talk about, as always. And I'm going to start with a piece uh, over at the New York Times. And I, I get it, you know, I always give this disclaimer. Because uh, I feel like when I say, hey, we're going to look at a piece of the New York Times, you're like, what, has Andrew gone off the rails? Why is he reading the New York Times? Well, sometimes they, they have uh, good information. Oftentimes when I, when I lean in on publications that we may or may not necessarily agree with, it's to give you an analysis of what some folks are saying. But this piece actually is highlighting something that we've been talking about for months now and, and highlighting a theme that we need to, uh, as a culture and as a society, really lean in and, and, and focus on. And certainly from a biblical worldview, we need to focus on this. Uh, but as a culture, we need to also recognize what the data is telling us. And it's written by David Brooks. The title of the article over at New York Times, and I'll put it in the show notes, is to be happy, marriage matters more than career. And here's what it says. When I'm around young adults, I like to ask them how they are thinking about the big commitments in their lives. What careers to go into, where to live, whom to marry? Most of them have thought a lot about their career plans, but my impression is that many have not thought a lot about how marriage will fit into their lives. The common operating assumption seems to be that professional life is at the core of life and that marriage would be something nice to add on top sometime down the road. And we talked about this before. We are at, currently in our culture, we are putting off marriage. We are putting off family. We are putting off having babies. I mean, I, I even heard this as I was coming up and, and getting older and, and getting out of my teenage years and into my 20s. I heard from folks, well, when I, when I finish college, that's when I'm going to get married. 
Well, when I get my master's, I'll get married. Well, when I get my Ph.D., that's when I get married. Or, or yeah, I'm married, but, but when I get my master's, when I get my Ph.D., when, when, I, when I finally get into the career that I want, when I'm financially stable, that's when I'll have kids. And so we've created this mindset of put off, put off, put off, put off. And that continues even more so today. The, the article goes further. The common operating assumption, as I said, is that professional life is at the core of life and marriage is kind of like icing on the cake. According to an analysis of recent survey data by the University of Virginia professor Brad Wilcox, and Brad Wilcox is an amazing resource, and, and I've quoted him often on this show and in other places. Go find him. Follow his stuff. If you want to learn more about family and, and fatherhood and motherhood and parenting all of that, uh, he's a very good resource. But this is what Wilcox said. 75% of adults ages 18 to 40 said that making a good living was crucial to fulfillment in life, while only 32% thought that marriage was crucial to fulfillment. In a Pew Research Center survey, 88% of parents, listen to this, especially if you're a parent, listen to this, 88% of parents said it was extremely are very important for their kids to be financially independent. 88% when asked said, look, the, the, one of the most important things for our kids as they become adults is that they would be financially independent. While only 21% said it was extremely or very important for their kids to marry. Now think, what, what, what message is that sending to the next generation? First off, one has to wonder, the, the folks that are saying, look, Marriage is not that important. Do they value their own marriage as important? That's one question. The folks that are saying marriage is not that important for my children, are, are these folks even married? That's another question. But Brooks goes further. He says, it's not that I meet many people who are against marriage. Today, as in the past, the vast majority of Americans would like to tie the knot someday. It's just that it's not exactly top of mind. Fewer people believe that marriage is vitally important. In 2006, 50% of young adults said it was very important for a couple to marry if they intended to spend the rest of their lives together. In 2006, only 50% young adults said it was very important for a couple to marry if they intended to spend the rest of their lives together. So I think that number is low. But by 2020, that 50% number goes to 29% of young adults said that it's very important for a couple to marry if they intend to spend the rest of their lives together. So we have continued to devalue marriage. Many people have shifted in the way they conceive of marriage. To use the sociologist uh, Andrew Churlin's language, they no longer view it as the cornerstone of their lives. They view it as the capstone, something to enter into after they've successfully, successfully established themselves as adults. So again, it's the put off, put off, put off. I got engaged when I was 21 years old. I was still in college. I had no money. I, I was working, I don't know, a bunch of jobs, mowing yards, working at a, a place, helping make horseshoes. I was selling insurance. I was working at the co-op, loading feed. I was working at a radio station. And we still had to take out maximum student loans just to afford anything. So we got engaged at 21, married by the time we were 22, but it was just a four-month span of engagement, and then we bought a house uh, because a bank that I worked at gave us a, a loan that they shouldn't have get, given us, but, you know, and then 2008 hit, and 
and a bunch of banks got in trouble for that. But, but so we, we stepped into that. But, but in our mindset, and I've said this before, my grandparents, the ones that are still living, have been married for 70 plus years. And so I grew up watching my grandmama and granddaddy hit milestone after milestone after milestone for marriage. And thinking, man, the only way you get to those milestones is, is you have to start early. Well, my granddaddy was 18, my grandmother a senior in high school, and they got married. Now, I'm not telling seniors in high school to go out and get married. But what I'm saying is, instead of the message being to the younger generation, keep putting it off until you're financially stable. When, who sets that metric? When are you financially stable? It's the same thing when people say, well, don't have kids yet. Wait, wait, keep putting it off until you're finan- when are you financially stable? And so folks are not seeing marriage as the cornerstone of their lives any longer. They are seeing it as a capstone. So they are putting it off until they feel like they have established themselves as adults. Partly as a result of these attitudes, there is less marriage in America today. The marriage rate is close to the lowest level in American history. For example, 1980, only 6% of 40-year-olds had never been married. As of 2021, 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married. 25%. Now, you would think we have access to dating apps. I mean, somebody told me the other day, hey, I met her on a Facebook dating app. Have you heard of it? I said, well, of course I haven't heard of it. I don't, I haven't never heard of it. I don't get on any dating apps. But you would think we have now access to all these dating apps, the social media. We have access to everyone. It's easily, easy, you're easily able to travel around the country. And so where, where people back in the day, you really just looked in your own town and own community and that's who you married. But now you, you may connect with somebody that lives across the country. You may connect with somebody that lives, uh, you know, somewhere else in a large city and you live in a rural community or vice versa or, or whatever it looks like. And, and so you would think, well, because we have access to, to everyone, that the marriage numbers would be up. But, but no, it's actually the opposite. And as of 2021, 25% of 40-year-olds had never been married. Brooks goes further, as I confront young adults who think this way, I'm seized by an unfortunate urge to sermonize. I want to put a hand on their shoulder and say, look, there are many reasons you may not find marital happiness in your life. Maybe you won't be able to find a financially stable partner or one who wants to commit. Maybe you'll marry a great person but find yourselves drifting apart. But don't let it be because you didn't prioritize marriage. Don't let it be because you didn't think hard about marriage when you were young. Look, I'm already talking to my kids about marriage. Now, my oldest is 12. I'm not telling him, now look around, which one, which girl are you going to ask to marry you? No, what I'm saying is marriage has value. Marriage is important. Marriage makes a difference. My strong advice is to obsess less about your career and to think a lot more about marriage. Please respect the truism that if you have a great career and a crappy marriage, you will be unhappy. But if you have a great marriage... And a crappy career, you will be happy. Please use your youthful years as a chance to have a romantic relationship so you'll have some practice when it comes to time to wed. Now, I would argue, I don't know how he's defining romantic, defining romantic relationships. So I don't want you to hear me say, go lay down with everyone out there so you have some practice. I'm not saying that at all. Obviously, from a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, you need to save yourself 
for marriage. But, but I do agree that we need to be thinking about marriage and not putting it off. It says, last month, for example, the University of Chicago economist Sam Peltzman published a study in which he found that marriage was the most important differentiator between happy and unhappy people. Married people are 30 points higher are 30 points happier than the unmarried. Income contributes to happiness too, but not as much. As Wilcox writes in his vitally important forthcoming book, and and I would encourage you to pre-order this, it's called Get Married. Marital quality is far and away the top predictor I have run across of life satisfaction in America. That's what Wilcox says. That's what the data says. That's what his new book, Get Married, says. And so I encourage you to find this book. And listen to these numbers. Specifically, the odds that men and women say they are very happy with their lives are a staggering 540% higher for those who are very, very happily married compared with peers who are not married or who are less than very happy in their marriages. When it comes to predicting overall happiness, a good marriage is far more important than how much education you get, how much money you make, how often you have sex, and yes, even how satisfied you are with your work. The economists Sean Grover and John F. Helwell studied two groups of adults over time, some who married and some who didn't. They found that marriage caused higher levels of life satisfaction, especially in middle age, when adults' average level of satisfaction tends to be its lowest. It wasn't only the traits people brought into the marriage. Marriage itself had positive effects. We could do a lot to raise the marriage rate by increasing wages. Financial precarity inhibits marriage. But as a culture, we can improve our national happiness levels by making sure that people Focus most on what is primary, marriage and intimate relationships, and not on what is important but secondary, their careers. Now, think about that. Now, again, I've said that the culture is good at diagnosing problems but terrible at, at finding and offering solutions. A secular culture that, that has muddied the waters on identity and gender and, and relationships and on marriage, we redefine marriage. Not too long ago, as a society, remember that. And so in doing these things, we have made marriage less desirable. And frankly, many of us married and in the church have made marriage look less desirable. The way we love our spouses has made marriage look less desirable for our children. So are we setting the bar high? Are we showing and illustrating a good relationship? Are we elevating the good ideas of God, like marriage and family? Or are we telling our children, hey, put it off, put it off, put it off? Let's do better. We'll be back. As we continue the conversation, there's a couple more things we want to look at. But before I move off the marriage topic... And look, like I said, over the last few months, we have really kind of honed in on identity and, and on marriage and on family and on traditional values. And and that's not to say that if you're listening to this show, listening to this podcast, and you're going, well, I'm not married, or I'm, I, I got a divorce, or, you know, I this or I that. Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not coming down on you. What I'm saying is we there is a... An ideal. Right? So, so like my parents divorced. And it was tough. Wasn't ideal. 
I had a mom that loved me. I had a dad that loved me. They're both still in my life. My mom remarried. I have a stepdad that loves me and has been like a, a second father for, for the bulk of my life and been an amazing man. So it worked out okay. But again, it's not the ideal. But, but in a fallen world, there are going to be moments where we don't have the ideal. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for those things. And so we should be elevating marriage. We should be illustrating to, to the younger generation that marriage has value. And, and, and if we're not, what, what are we telling them to, to put off? And, and why? What, what is the core of why we find ourselves saying things like, well, just put off marriage till you finish college? And look, when, when, when I asked Aaron to marry me, there were certainly folks saying, well, why don't you just wait till you graduate? Well, why? Well, because, you know, then you'll have a degree. Okay, but why? Well, because then you'll be financially stable. Really? Really, you think my first job out of college is going to be like the long-term financially stable job? Because I can assure you, even when I took the first job, I was still leaving the office and going to mow yards because I didn't have any money. So, so it isn't as if, oh, well, you're going to graduate college, you're going to be making big bucks in your first job, and you'll be financially stable. No. Now you have people saying, well, well, to buy a starter home with the way the market value ha- has increased, you know, that th- you just can't afford it. My first house was sixty, sixty-two thousand dollars. I mean, good luck finding that anywhere, and that was a stretch for us. And so what are we telling them to put off? And what's the goal? What's the hope? Now, now, if your daughter is with a, a guy that you do not approve of or a deadbeat, then, yeah, it might be good to have a conversation and say, don't marry this boy. And I, I said, boy, there's on purpose. If your son has found himself in a difficult circumstance, in a difficult situation, he may not need to marry the person that he's dating. But if everybody agrees, like when I called my father-in-law, who wasn't my father-in-law at the time, when I, when I had a conversation with him saying, hey, I want to ask your daughter to marry me, he could have said a lot of things. But he said yes. He didn't say, well, hold on. What's your bank account look like? Well, hold on. When are you going to graduate college? Well, hold on. No, he, he said you, you have been a part of the family. I think you're going to love and protect my daughter. And so you have my blessing. So, again, why are we putting off these things? Now, sometimes we, we, are, we are asking the next generation and our children to put off these things because in our own lives we feel like we are less than. In our own lives, we, we feel like we haven't achieved whatever it is we hoped to achieve. And, and, and some of us, if we're honest, we'll, we'll say things like, well, but if I wouldn't have gotten married, I would have been able to achieve that dream job or, 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 or fill in the blank. I would have been able to travel more. I would have been able to do this or do that. If I wouldn't have had kids at such an early age, I'd have been able to, to really become independent and, and and grow into my own self and, and go and find myself and all these things. 
What what do those things have in common? Where does the genesis of those beliefs come from? Is that the love of others or is that elevating oneself? It's something we need to wrestle with. As I said, I said a few weeks ago, you know, we've gone from sacrificing ourselves for future generations to sacrificing future generations for ourselves. So this selfishness has brought about putting off the things that matter. I told this story before, but my my papa, my dad's dad, lived till he was 96. He lived in, in a small town in Cornersville, Tennessee. He milked cows from the time he was five years old till the time he was about 75-ish, but farmed until the day he died. He never really left Cornersville. He had a brother that lived in Chattanooga. I think he, he visited him once, maybe twice. I don't know if my papa ever left the state of Tennessee. Most of his clothes he had for, for decades because my grandma would just patch when they, they had money, but she would just patch his pants and he would just keep plugging along. My grandma made all of her own dresses. Again, they had money. But that was the choice they made. Lived a very simple life. Now, culture would say, well, that's not success. They didn't get to see the world. They didn't get to go and travel here and travel there. They didn't get to do this. They were, they were handcuffed to the farm. But my papa never felt like he was missing something. And he and my grandma got married late in life. Later. They had two sons. They had, let me think, nine, ten grandchildren. If they were still living today, they would have a number of great-grandchildren inching ever so closely to, to 15, 16 great-grandchildren. And they made an impact. And they illustrated to us that, that marriage has value. That loving your spouse doesn't mean sitting down and, and having heart-to-heart conversations all the time and every single night and, and being, you know, all over each other all the time. No, what, what it was for them was my papa would sit in his recliner, my grandma would sit in her recliner. And I always wondered growing up, because the Wood family was very much, we, especially the men, we didn't hug, uh, we didn't tell each other, we loved each other, just very, you know, we kind of knew it, but we didn't say those things. And I always wondered about my papa and my grandma, because they just, I didn't see them interact like that. And I was just like, I mean, I, I know they love each other. But when my grandma was on her deathbed, she had fallen, broken her hip, and then she had a blood clot, and, and, and things were, as we could tell, were, were going south quickly. I just happened to be in visiting from Knoxville, and, and I was at the hospital, and, and just because of the timing, it wasn't because my brothers chose not to be there, just because of the timing, I was there. And it was me, my dad, 
my pawpaw and my grandma laying there. And the doctors tell us, the doctors tell us, look, you know, because of the issues here, she really needs her leg amputated, but we don't think she's going to survive that. And so at that moment, we knew it's time to say bye to my grandma. And I watched my pawpaw for the first time ever in my life cry, and he rubbed her face and told her how much he loved her. And that I knew this man has loved this woman for 60 plus years. And, and they were able to have that moment. Why? Because marriage had value. He was there for the long haul. She was there for the long haul. Ups and downs, good and bad, didn't matter. It was a covenant between them two. And the effect that they had on, on a lot of folks, even though they never left that little small town, is tremendous. Because they put in the effort. We'll be back. So I think I've covered marriage. I could <laughs> I could continue to talk about it and we'll continue to talk about it as the weeks come because I do think we are missing it as a culture and as a society. And I think frankly as a as a church we're missing it. I think sometimes we take these things for granted. And so because of that we don't talk about them. I mean, when's the last time you heard a sermon on marriage? When's the last time you, 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 you saw that the, the illustration of marriage is, is Christ and the church? I mean, that's why marriage is so... It isn't just us saying, look, we need to, we need to populate the, the earth. I mean, that, that's part of it. But it isn't just that. What does marriage give us a picture of? Christ laying his life down for the church, for his bride. That's what. It matters. It's mattered since the beginning. Rollin Warren, the president of CareNet, I heard him say this the other day. He said, God prepared or created the basket for the child before he created the child. What does that mean? It means sanctity of marriage matters. We can't neglect the sanctity of marriage and, and also say we care about the sanctity of life. Because when you think about when Jesus came to be, well, what happened? The basket was created first. Mary and Joseph in partnership together, the basket created before the child came. You go back to the garden. What, what happened? Adam and Eve, the basket created for a child to thrive and to grow. And so we value these things because God values these things. I now want to shift. I now want to shift just a bit and, and look at there's a piece over at the National Catholic Register. I mean, we're, we're, we're covering a lot of bases today, folks. The New York Times, National Catholic Register, my papa in Cornersville, Tennessee. You're not getting this anywhere else, I can assure you. But. But it's a note from the publisher, and the title is, On Abortion, How Do We Get to Unthinkable? Every time the pro-life movement succeeds in protecting laws that save the lives of unborn children, those laws automatically will assist our mission of rebuilding a culture of life in the U.S. While the ballot initiative in Ohio that failed earlier this month wasn't specifically about abortion, it's undeniable 
that the outcome in the Buckeye State marks an uphill climb for the state's pro-life movement. If passed, Ohio's Issue 1 would have raised the threshold for amending the state constitution to 60% of total votes cast from the current 50% plus 1. Issue 1 proponents stressed that the provision would apply to all future amendments in order to better fulfill a state's constitution purpose of providing a settled legal framework. But Issue 1 supporters primarily had hoped to increase the likelihood voters will reject the abortion-on-demand constitutional amendment that will be on the ballot in Ohio's November election. So it's accurate to view Issue 1's defeat as a momentary pro-life disappointment. Even as Ohioans gear up for the vote in November that's entirely about abortion, pro-lifers in Ohio will face the same challenging factors, the disinformation and deep pockets of the pro-abortion lobby, that resulted in pro-life defeats in all of six previous abortion-related state ballot measures since last year's Dobbs decision. But the underlying issue in any post-road debate over abortion policy is something different and more significant. After more than five decades of legal abortion, the majority of Americans no longer recoil in revulsion at the very idea of killing unborn babies in their own mother's wombs. We haven't only been outspent and outmessaged, we have been outtaught. The law is always a teacher, and unfortunately for Far too long, courtesy of the flawed Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that Dobbs overturned in June 2022, Americans were taught that abortion is a protected constitutional right, not a deadly and horrifying legal and human travesty. So for the pro-life movement, the central question going forward must be this one. How do we get back to unthinkable when it comes to abortion? As a start, we must understand it's going to be a long-term struggle to renew our national understanding of the sanctity of all unborn human life. Rose's demise didn't mark the conclusion of the fight against legal abortion. With authority over abortion law now shifted back to the states, we have entered an even more complicated stage of the struggle. This stage includes our ongoing efforts to protect and expand the pro-life legal framework in individual states. Yet, even more importantly, our overarching focus must be on changing hearts and minds that have been hardened to the horror of abortion and its effects on women in society at large. Fortunately, despite the warped perspective that Roe's long reign has imposed on the nation's thinking about abortion, there are reasons for hope. For one thing, we know a strong majority of Americans already understand that a human life is at stake later in pregnancy. That's why polls consistently indicate they oppose abortions at that time. A June, 23, or June 2023 Gallup poll reported that only 37% of Americans think abortion should be legal in the second three months of pregnancy, and only 22% support legal abortion in the final three months. Our challenge is to help this majority of Americans to understand that the same life is at stake earlier, from the moment of conception onward. Here, science is on, on our side. Medical advances like 3D ultrasound and innovative educational programs like John Paul II Life Center's A Glimpse Inside initiative can join together to communicate to America's younger generations that undeniable scientific proof about the full humanity of unborn babies. Yes, I would, I would just add here, it is undeniable scientific proof, but also... As gospel people, as people that believe the word of God to be true, first and foremost, we stand for life because God is the author and creator of it, period. Yes, the science backs it up. Yes, the science supports it. But we don't just stop there. Science is not my motivation to stand for life. Perseverance is another necessary asset that the pro-life movement already possesses. 
In the immediate aftermath of Roe, as public opinion appeared to have turned decisively and permanently in favor of legal abortion, America's pro-life advocates didn't give up. Instead, faithful uh, Catholics and others rolled up their sleeves and began building up the world's foremost pro-life movement. We are now in a time somewhat uh, similar to that initial post-Roe period, with numerous protracted state-level fights in store and an immediate success uncertain in many of those battles. And on the federal level, the absence of political leadership on a coherent vision to protect life will likely prove to be a serious political handicap for Republicans in the upcoming 2024 election. These GOP divisions stand in sharp contrast to the stridently pro-abortion line currently being advanced by the virtually every prominent Democrat, including the president, who issued a triumphant White House press release hailing issue one's defeat. Right now, we should draw lessons from what happened last year in the failed pro-life ballot initiatives, which saw pro-abortion politicians, abetted by sympathetic media and deep-pocketed activists, push disinformation campaigns exaggerating American support for abortion on demand at any stage and demonizing any restrictions. Many voters consequently did not sufficiently understand that when they cast ballots to constitutionalize a right to abortion in their states, what they were actually endorsing was a permanent and unrestricted open season on the killing of unborn children right up to the time of their births. And it goes on and on and on. Look, folks, we need to start with getting our house in order. So, and what do I mean by that? I have seen, even as recently as this week, social media posts from, from people that I know, from people that I've gone to church with in the past, from people that I know that love Jesus, love God, love his word, believe the Bible to be true. I've seen posts. Statements on social media from folks like this upset that certain states are enacting laws to restrict abortion. You see, when, when we make arguments based solely on science, what we have seen over the last three years, that, that science changes, Okay? What we knew to be true for decades in, quote-unquote, science, ebbs and flows. It's fluid, as they say nowadays. So when we say the science backs it up, and look, I'm here to tell you the science does back it up. But when we, when we take the bait, as I've talked about before, and we leave God on the shelf, and we leave our biblical perspective and our biblical worldview on the shelf, and we try to have this debate and this back and forth based on science... The scientists, the medical experts, quote-unquote, in our society today, the vast majority of them, although they don't perform abortions, because the vast majority of OBs do not perform abortions, but they vote in a very different way. And so as we think about this, we, we have to get back to a place where the church is saying, no, it's a biblical mandate. That we care about life. It's a biblical mandate that we care about the most vulnerable. It's a biblical mandate that we care about life in the womb. That we care about our neighbor. And so we should be having these conversations. I think for many of us, we assume there are no people in our congregations that are pro-choice. Don't assume that. 
because it would be a wrong-headed assumption. And so when I'm talking to my children, when I'm talking to young people, when I'm talking to uh, volunteers, staff, people within the pregnancy center world and, and in the pro-life movement, when I'm talking with these folks, am I pointing them to the science only or am I pointing them to the biblical worldview and the biblical perspective that God is the creator and author of life? Because the Bible says that that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you say the same about science? Now, now again, in a, if we were having a logical conversation, in a logical world, one would say, well, with the 3D technology, with ultrasound technology, I mean, literally today, I'm going to the doctor with my wife, and we are having an anatomy scan. To, to find out if our baby is going to be a boy or a girl. Not too long ago, that was impossible. So one could argue, logically, that the advancement has certainly made the case for us. But, but we don't live in a logical world. So although we, we do look at the science and say, look, the science backs it up, the, the 3D imaging, the ultrasound technology, the, 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 all the common sense type stuff that we know, we talk about that, but we do not base all of our theology on that. No, we, we base it on that, that God is the author of life. That's what motivates us. We'll be back. As we finish up today, look, I'm, I'm going to continue to beat the drum and, and sound like a broken record. And talk and bring us back to a biblical worldview. We must. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to family, when it comes to life, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to gender and ideology and, and identity, the culture has no answer. So that piece that I started with at the New York Times, David Brooks, I don't know his faith. You know, some of the stuff I read from him, I'm like, he's definitely, you know, a believer and, and lined up. But then some other things, I'm like, I don't know so much. But because there is this motivation and, and there's this desire at times to, to say, well, well, marriage matters. We need to do these things. We need, well, well, Why? Why? What's the foundation? What's the genesis of why that matters to me and why that matters to the next generation? Outside of the biblical worldview, it doesn't make sense. So if you tell a, a, a generation coming up today, you tell the culture today, men, stand up, protect your spouse, protect your wife, give your life for your family if need be. Outside of the biblical worldview, that makes zero sense. Why? Because culture and society would say, look out for you, look out for yourself. Even the only the strong survive, the evolutionary mindset is look out for you, look out for yourself. It doesn't make sense outside of the biblical worldview why you should love your neighbor. That's why it was always interesting to me when secular folks were telling us to love our neighbor during difficult times in our, in our country and our, what we were dealing with. Why? Outside of a biblical worldview, why should I love my neighbor? 
Why should I follow any any rule, any set of uh, statements? But see, a biblical worldview gives us a chance to step in and say, well, here's why, because order matters. Here's why, because the God of the universe deserves, deserves your affection. You see, so if we, if we allow ourselves to be pulled into the, the culture and the ways of society, a secular society, and pulled out of a biblical worldview and biblical principles, then, then we have no leg to stand on. None. And so we must stand firm in the faith. Again, as we talked about, you don't just put on the armor of God when it suits you and take it off. That, that's not what it says. You put it on, period. And then we speak truth boldly, with compassion, with grace, with mercy, recognizing that we are ourselves sinful, that our marriages are struggling. I'm not telling you to, that, that, that just because we're, we're elevating marriage that, that all of our marriages are going to be perfect. Not the case. Certainly not the case. But, but we have to be elevating the things of God. The high ideas of God. Are we elevating those things? Because the interesting thing is the secular culture is noticing, hey, we, we have a fatherless problem. The secular culture is noticing, hey, less people are getting married. What, that, that could be a problem. The secular culture is noticing, hey, less people are having babies. That, that could be a problem. But, but they have no answer because they don't have a biblical worldview. So, again, really good at diagnosing the problem. Oh, we have a mental health issue. We have some, some you know, we have problems. We have a lot of people hurting. We have a lot of people hurting. And at the same time, telling people to be your truest self, be whoever it is you want to be, make yourself happy. It's all about your happiness. Well, if it's all about my happiness, what happens when I'm not happy? Where do I find any, any desire to continue or any hope if it's all about my happiness and there are days I'm not happy? Outside of a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview that says that, that our God is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. A biblical worldview that says, cast your cares, cast your burdens on me. A biblical worldview that says, I went to the cross for you on your worst day. So on those days that you were left without joy, on those days when you were not happy, on those days where you were struggling, I want you to know that you have a God that loves you, and is there for you, and is calling you to something greater. You see, a secular society doesn't have that, but we do. And what a blessing it is. We'll talk to you next time.